Grace Church. Thank you again for your prayers this week for me and my family and for uh, Ryan's family. Um, we're, we're doing all right. So um, I hate to be with you by video, but that's what's best. So uh, l- let me pray and uh, we'll, uh, we'll get into God's word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a sure and unchanging foundation for us in, in every season. Please uh, illuminate your word to us now, even though there's, there's uh, strange distractions of me being on video. And um, I, I thank you for how you worked last week through Dan and through um, this, how the service went last week. You intended the words that you intended, and they were good. And so I thank you for that, and I pray that you would do that yet still again today. Cause your word to dwell richly in our hearts. Cause this to be a a truly useful time for us, we pray. Amen. Well, we are back today in Luke 14, and Jesus is again invited to a meal, again by a Pharisee, and again on a Sabbath, and again he is confronted with a person who needs healing. Um, this, this time it's a man. You may remember back in chapter 13, it was a woman who needed healing there, the, the bent-over woman in the synagogue. This man here has dropsy, which, as I understand it, is an old-fashioned term for edema, for, for fluid built up um, in the bodily tissues. Um, and normally, under pharisaical law, the man with dropsy would not be allowed into table fellowship with all of these people. So it's interesting that he's here, and the reason that he's here, I'm convinced, is that it's a trap. The Pharisees have heard about Jesus uh, wiping the floor with the synagogue rulers back in chapter 13, and now they want to use Jesus' compassion against him. They want to force his hand to heal the man with dropsy on the Sabbath. In this way, by, by their interpretation, Jesus will break the law, and then then they can openly condemn him. Um, Cancel culture is just a modern term for something very old, a very ancient practice. You you take someone that you are envious of and you create an impossible-to-obey moralistic system of laws by which you can judge and then openly condemn that person. And that's not the end purpose. The end purpose of the canceling is so that they can either destroy or take for themselves what they are envious that the canceled person has come to rightfully, justly possess. So people here are rejoicing at the glorious things that have been done by Jesus. We saw that back in the synagogue episode. That's what the Pharisees envy. That's what they want, and that's why they want Jesus canceled. Then and now, the heart of canceled culture is envy. The sidelong glance, the breaking of the Tenth Commandment. Envy, it ruins everything. It ruins sibling rivalries. It ruins race relations. It ruins churches. It ruins gender identity. It ruins public health decisions. It ruins race relations, friendships, peace in your soul, and it ruins entire nations. But Jesus shows us a better way. It is the only way out of the caustic trap of self-promoting envy. And so let's let's look at this much better way because it is a it is as much better a way as as life is better 
than death. So let's, let's look at it now in Luke 14. Jesus enters the lunch, verse 1, and it being a trap and all, everybody is watching him very closely, it says. And of course, Jesus sees the man with dropsy, verse 2, and he knows what's going on. He can put two to two together. And so, verse 3, he asks them the simplest of questions. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And verse 4, they remain silent because they're cowards. They're cowards. And Jesus is content to let their cowardly silence reverberate loudly in their ears. And while that's happening, almost as an aside, he, he calls the man with dropsy over, heals him, and sends him away. It's almost, it's almost like he's saying, you know, friend, this, this, this whole thing, it really isn't about you. This dining room is not a place of peace, but of combat. So this is a place where people who are unwell get used and abused, people like you. So I'm, I'm going to reverse that, and I, I'm, I'm going to free you from being used by those more powerful than you. So I, I'll stay. I'll stay here in this dark place, in your place, and fight. But, but you, you, you leave the darkness. You go into the light of day and enjoy the Sabbath. Enjoy the work of God in you as a gift. But back to the silence of the cowards. Looking closely at this, we, we see here, uh, this is what humans do when in their envy, they, we, us, me, any of us are co-opted by any ism, by any ideology in our envy. It's not a matter of whether you love some things and hate and are cold and cruel to other things. It's not whether, but which things they are, which things we love and which things we are cold and cruel to, not whether, but which. The Christian who loves God will be cold and cruel to his sins. On the other hand, the, the, the judge who shows unjust mercy to a criminal is by necessity being cold and cruel to that criminal's victims. It's not whether, but which. The Pharisees are coldly, cruelly silent about this man who has real suffering because what they really love is not him. They love themselves. What they really love is the promotion of themselves. They love themselves. Thus, they coldly, cruelly use him as a tool to their own ends. But Jesus reverses the cruelties of men. He loves the man with dropsy and is cold and cruel to what? Actually, to the Pharisee's system of self-promoting moralism. Verse 5. So he says, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? It's the same basic argument you may remember from the synagogue in chapter 13. If your son falls in a well on the Sabbath, you, you'll pull him out of it, right? Then in here, they could not reply to the question, verse 6, because it totally exposed their hypocrisy. They presumed to stand in the place of God where they, they, they want to be seen as holy, but really, in reality, they're just little devils. Presuming to be lions of Judah, they're just thieving little foxes. Now, in our day, in our day, many people make what Jesus does here their endgame. Dude, sick bird, man. That guy, he really owned that guy on Twitter. Scorched earth, brah. You can see the videos, you know, on YouTube. Twelve times Ben Shapiro owned the libs. But if Jesus loves the man with dropsy and hates the Pharisee system of moralism, how does he feel about the Pharisees? Well, he loves them too. Yet, yet another reason why we call it amazing grace. 
It's just that his love to them needs to look a little different because the door to enter God's house is narrow. And if we are bloated with pride, we will not fit. Chapter 13, verse 24. God gives grace to the humble, but the doorposts of his house resist the proud. So because God loves them, because Jesus loves them, he doesn't let up. He doesn't rest at the point of the sick burn. He keeps going. Because Jesus loves them, he is no gentleman to the ideology that enslaves him. He wants to kill it. He, he's no gentleman to the ideology that makes them hypocritical devils. He is here to do mortal combat with their envy and their system of proud self-attainment. And Jesus knows proud envy is their problem because while they were watching him closely, he was watching them closely. Verse 7, he saw how they jockeyed for the best seats at the table. As we might ever cast a critical judging eye on God, that's always like the pot casting a critical eye on the potter. But it's only the potter's gazing eye that really matters. God sees us and he sees us through and through. So Jesus tells a parable, a parable that's probably been applicable to every wedding in the history of mankind. Verse 8, when you are invited to a wedding feast, you, you don't, don't presume to sit at the head table with the bride and the groom. Because maybe those seats are designated for other people. Very likely, actually. And because, verse 9, by the time you're told to go find another seat, you find that all the other seats are taken. And so you have to go from the very front to the very back. I mean, even in our culture, which is not an honor-shame culture like this one, this would still be embarrassing. On the other hand, verse 10, when you are invited to a wedding feast, choose the humblest seat at the very back and wait by faith for the master of the wedding to ask you to the front to exalt you. Then you will be really honored instead of shamed. We don't have to guess at Jesus' point. He tells us in verse 11, and the key here to understanding this parable is what you do with yourself. If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. Put it another way, it's not a matter of whether you pursue exaltation, but how. Everybody pursues exaltation as if we were designed for it, as we will see. The question is not whether, but how and whom, either by directly pursuing exaltation myself or by pursuing it with humility, waiting by faith for the master of the wedding to exalt me. The question is not whether we pursue exaltation, but how and by whom, by myself or by waiting for the master of the wedding. So the Pharisees, they, they got it all wrong, and Jesus loves them enough to tell them so. He loves them enough not to drop the mic and walk off the stage, but to stay on this unruly stage and to keep on with them, to tell them that. Well, the central principle of this passage is, of course, humility. It is humility. But it is important that we understand just what Jesus means by this word, humility. Because we often think of humility as the, the ridding of the self of all ambition and desire. We, we think of it as the disappearance of the self, the, the putting the self in neutral, making ourselves inert. But that's not the humility of this passage. 
This is hard for us because we cannot comprehend that humble weakness could be the pathway to glory. We sin-stained humans have trouble conceiving of any pursuit of glory that is not rooted in envy, naked envy, and self-seeking. Most of our great TV shows follow this plotline of people rooted in naked, self-seeking envy who use other people in the pursuit of their own self-promotion. We watch that as entertainment. Yet for Jesus, the goal of personal glory is not the problem. Isn't that fascinating? It's not the problem here. The question is how and by whom. Because this has been the theme of the Bible from the very start. The problem of the Garden of Eden is that we lost our glory there. And we've been trying to recapture it ourselves with tree branches and animal skins ever since. We were always meant to be God's idols, to be images of him and his glory to the created world. We were made to be robed in glory. Excuse me. We were made to be robed in glory. The question is not whether we should seek for glory, but how. Paul puts it this way in Romans 2, beginning in verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works, verse 7, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. We often would say he will give them wrath. But Paul says, He will give eternal life to those who seek for glory and honor and immortality. Verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So Paul seems to think that there's a seeking for glory that is not self-seeking. How can this be? This is, for the most part, this is all we've ever known as human beings. Paul goes on, verse 9, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Paul goes so far as to say that only, only those who seek for glory and honor and immortality, only those people will God give eternal life. And yet at the same time, this seeking for glory is not self-seeking. That's something different. Well, there is only one way that this can be, that this can possibly exist, and it is the path of humility. The path of humility, which Paul will say in Romans 3, verses 21 to 26, is expressed by faith. Humility gives up self-effort and requires faith in another completely. In order to do that which is necessary to achieve what we desire, what is our ambition. Thus, faith is the outward expression of humility. The ambition for glory remains, but humility rests and trusts completely in another by faith in order to accomplish that mission of glory. And thus, humility, showing forth in faith, leads to glory. But how? Because even Jesus would say in John 8 that I don't seek my own glory. Faith glorifies the object of our faith, the one we rely upon. Faith shines a bright light on the one we trust in. The one who gives the strength and gains the victory gets the glory. But when one shifts their faith off of themselves and onto God, 
It just so happens that the one we rely upon is infinitely glorious. His glory is limitless. And part of his glory is a limitless generosity. In response to our glorifying him by our little faith, he generously, lavishly exalts us with him, with him. He shares his glory with us. Because by our faith, we did the thing that the world most needed to see the gloriousness of the grace of this God. Okay, so here's where this is most vividly put in Scripture, in Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, though, though he was equal and equally exalted with God. He did not account, count equality with God a thing to be grasped. His, his exaltation with God was not something that he held on to selfishly, but instead he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because he humbled himself, God has highly exalted him, verse 9, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's the exaltation. But where's the glory? It says, to the glory of God the Father. So these Pharisees, they, they think that they've invited Jesus into their meal, into their inner circle, but it turns out it's Jesus who's hosting them at an invitation meal to tell them, you're really on the outside. You, you show it by your anti-God cold cruelty, using that poor man to cancel me to promote yourself. But this just shows that you're outside the master's house, but I'm here to invite you to the wedding feast that the master of the wedding has gone off to prepare. And not only do I invite you, I'm preparing the path for you to follow to get there. And I will keep blazing the path all the way to the point of the cross. For there I will debase and humble myself completely. I will be stripped naked and beaten and disrobed of every shred of dignity and nobility that I have ever had, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. I will do it for you. And I'll be nailed to that cross for you. For you. But three days later, I will be exalted. The Father will seat me at the head table of the wedding. And there I will wait for my bride. And there will be plenty of seats there, one even for you. If you trust me in what I will do to accomplish that for you. And if you follow me, if you follow my path of humility that must go down in order to go up. First the debasement, first the humbling, and then on the other side of that, the exaltation. Pursue the exaltation that only comes on the other side of humility. This is not about forgetting any ambition for exaltation. It's about pursuing it down the path by which exaltation is only found by bringing glory to the Father. And that is a path first of humility. The humility that trusts me that follows me, the exaltation that you will find, you will find in my resurrection, in my exaltation, by trusting in me. So pursue glory, the glory that is only found by humility, 
humility issuing forth in faith, faith in me, faith in Jesus alone. But again, what exactly does the humility of Jesus' wedding look like? There is a word that I have now heard used across um, four different generations of Christians. Once by an old Puritan, then by G.K. Chesterton, and then by C.S. Lewis, and then recently by a modern writer. They all use the same word, and that word is buoyant. That, that Christianity is, is a religion of buoyant humility. Buoyant humility. As in what a plastic ball does when you try to bury it in water. It is buoyant. It cannot help but reemerge. It has a power to it that no power of the water can overcome. And I think all these generations are seeing the same thing. It's, it's what you feel at a wedding. It's what you feel. It, it, it's what I felt at uh, Joshua and Audrey Cudworth's wedding. And it's why, as a pastor, I, I love doing weddings. It, it's because, as a, as a pastor, though though I'm I'm right in the middle of it. I'm for plenty of it. I'm I'm front and center. It is most certainly not about me, and that is so freeing. It's not about me. It's not about me. And and yet and yet we are all welcomed into the glory of the moment at the same time. It is so. Wedding receptions are, are such a, a self-forgetfully joyous and glorious occasion. The, the, the beauty, the love, the purity, the richness, and yet the, the lightness of that moment, the, the self-forgetting happiness of that moment when, when Audrey and her father, without a care in the world, sang and danced for everybody. The, the glories of it all. It's, not all, it's not about us, and yet we are welcomed into it to share in all of it. In fact, that, that there's a sense in which our sharing it heightens the joy and the pleasure of the one being glorified. And that's how this works. That's how salvation works. And when we enter into that, it, it is as if we, we're like Eric Little um, in, in Chariots of Fire when he said, when I run, I feel the Lord's pleasure. It is as if our pleasure, in, in some sense, does not enhance God's glory, which is infinite, but in another sense, it causes God's pleasure in his own glory to increase in our joy, in our, in our enjoyment of his glory. But when we are weighed down with anxieties and concerns about ourselves, our concerns for ourselves weigh us down and we, we sink like rocks in the waters. But to be relieved of all that self-concern and self-promotion, all the anxieties and fears we have about ourselves, to be, to be self-forgetting, to be, to be self-forgetting in, in a fear of God, and, and to have a, a, an all-encompassing, all-consuming, self-forgetting ambition to see him glorified, to share joyfully in that glory. Well, that, that makes a person buoyant, no, no longer sinking in the waters, but, but lifted up in joy, exalted, no longer weighed down by the fears and anxieties of the self, for they are so heavy, so heavy. This is what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Christian, all your concerns about yourself, all of them, that you may not be right, that you may be wrong. He took all those on himself and paid for them all. 
and all those failures that you might commit in the future paid. All those regrets from the past, all those mistakes that you did make in the past paid. All those weaknesses that you're ashamed about, he took them on himself. Your anxieties about not having enough in the future, he ascended and reigns over you and promises to never leave you nor forsake you. Your fears about sickness and death, they will all be resolved when you are raised with him in glory. Is your faith there in him? Because there is now not one fear, not one anxiety about yourself that Jesus did not take care of justly, completely, entirely on the cross. You, me, I, Jed, preach this to yourself, Jed. You really can lay them all down and leave them there at the foot of the cross at Calvary. The more we grow in this, and grow we must, the more something really <clears throat> strange happens. The more something, one of the great ironies of the Christian life, we, we actually grow in the fear of him, the fear of him. And yet, and yet, the, the fear of him and, and it growing by, by faith in him, it, it builds in us. The, the, the only word I can use is, only other word besides buoyant humility is the, the joy, jo, jovialness, the jovialness of a wedding. This, this joviality, it, it frees us from self-regard to pursue ambitions, not to be inert, but, but to pursue ambitions that will set the world on fire for the glory of God. So, <clears throat> Nehemiah said that the joy of the Lord is our strength, and it is indeed. So how do we apply this? Well, three ways. The first is this. We must as, in order to fight our fears, we must get a bigger fear. The way we fight our anxieties and fears about ourselves is to get a bigger fear. In Philippians 2, Paul takes Jesus' going down to go up trajectory and applies it to us this way. After that passage I just read, verses 12 and 13, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Hmm. Verse 12 tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, which is the fear of God. So we are to constantly strive to live in a humble dependence and respect and a humble reverence of God. But verse 13 is the kicker. It says, for because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here's the irony. The more we focus on this God, the, the, the more we respect him and, and humbly revere him and intently discern what he wants and rely on him to do it. For it is him who is working in us um, so that he's the one who gets the glory. Here's what we discover. The, the more we discover about him, the more we discover that he himself is a jovial God, that he himself is a happy God who wills and works for pleasure. For his good pleasure, which is then our good pleasure as well. The more we humbly fear this God, the more Jesus' promise to us back in, in Luke 12, 32 comes true for us. There where he said, fear not little flock. Why? Because we learn over time that it is our Father's good pleasure, same words there, to give us the kingdom. This is a jovial God 
And the more we fear him, the more ironically we experience that the joviality of God, the good pleasure of God. And the more we the, the more we leave ourselves with him humbly, the more he will give us back to ourselves, enriched, glorified, and taking possession of the entire kingdom. People who are fearless, filled with ambitions for glory, though humble the entire time. One of the great ironies of Christendom. We can self-forgettingly pursue with great ambition his good pleasure, forgetting ourselves the whole time, trusting all the while that he will exalt us. So the first application here is to get a bigger fear, ironically, which will lead to a a, a jovial, self-forgetting life. But the second is this, to get a bigger ambition, therefore. Because the humble are not inert, lifeless people. Not the Christian humble. The humble are the only people, the Christian humble, the buoyantly humble, are the only people capable of pursuing big goals despite the risk of failure and despite the opposition that those big goals might encounter. It's the truly humble who are needed to to hunt down the unsaved and the unwell and the unknown in Elk Grove and to show them the gospel, to show them what real mercy looks like, to show them that, that they're known and that are known by a God who is a happy God and who longs to bring them into his presence and into his kingdom. The, 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 the green beret strike teams of God's kingdom are populated not by proud people, but by those who have this buoyant humility, who have themselves enough faith by God to join the fray and who are in their buoyant, buoyant humility Uh, forgetting themselves as they enter the fray. So number two is we need to get bigger goals. What are your goals? What are your goals for the coming year? Not for yourself, but for Elk Grove, for the people around you, for the glory of God, I should say, here in Elk Grove. What are your goals? Are they big enough for God to fit in? This God, this happy God. And thirdly, Thirdly, as as we pursue this buoyant humility, this cross-bloody, humility-drenched buoyancy, as as we pursue this this jovial hope um, along the way, this is not so much an application, but just something to look for and to watch for. Along the way, envy gets shredded and starved and stampeded. Because the more we learn this buoyant humility, the the more we learn to live as people, and the more we become as a church a people where nobody cares who gets the credit. Because it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Because the glory comes from one source anyway, and it ain't us, and it's infinite anyway. And it's all by grace. We don't earn it. It's all by grace. We become a little bit more day by day like what we will be one day when that great wedding feast at the end happens. Revelation 19, 6 through 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready, and it was granted her to clothe herself with glory, with fine linen, bright and pure. 
for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Righteous deeds done by faith. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. That's really what this entire passage is about, coming to a place of truly worshiping God. And it turns out when we do that, we become the most jovial, buoyantly humble, happy people, just like the God we worship, just like him. Well, amen and amen, and, and let us continue to do that now as I pray and as we celebrate um, a dress rehearsal of sorts for this great wedding feast to come as we celebrate communion. So let me pray. Father, please make us this kind of people. Make us a people who are truly, authentically humble before you, humbled by what you accomplished for us on the cross, and uh, lifted up by what you did for us on the cross, truly freed from self-fear and self-regard, self-anxiety, freed from how, how heavy those things weight us down. Make us truly free by your Spirit. Make us free and thereby make us free from envy, envy of one another, envy of the world. Make us free and make us free people who are free to pursue great goals for you, to be filled with ambitions for glory, your glory which you will then share with us out of your infinitely glorious nature. You're just, I'm just so glad that you're the God who's there because you are a good, gloriously good God. And we thank you. So hear us now as we continue to pray to you and think about you and sing of you. In your name, in your great name, we pray. Amen. Amen and amen.